once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. Today is Thursday, the 28th of May, 2020, Feast of St. Augustine of Canterbury. Welcome to episode number 112 of the Barnhart Podcast. This is Mark Doherty, sitting in for Super Nerd, and this is Ann. Hey guys, this is a special, totally um, um, off the cu- not off the cuff, but last minute thrown together in literally a matter of a few hours after the enormous uh, proverbial bomb that was dropped yesterday by Dr. Edmund Matza, who joins us today on the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Matza. Oh, thank you, guys. It's a pleasure. We're so glad to have you here. And just speaking on behalf of so many people, um, let me be, be the first to say thank you, sir. Well done. Well done. And um, really excited to have you on and to um, drill down further into your uh, really groundbreaking and really opening things up and moving this, this situation forward. Your thesis on the invalidity of Pope Benedict's resignation. Um, you've, you just did, good, goodness, how, how long was your interview with Taylor Marshall yesterday? Hour and a half, two hours? Yeah, we, we, I think we could have talked all day. It was wonderful. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we can, we can now pick this up and we can run with it. And uh, Mark and I were chatting earlier. And, Mark, you think that there's probably multiple episodes in potential in your outline tr- also. Yeah, so so I haven't didn't really have much time to to write an outline. So I thought what we would use would be I, I took notes from the the Taylor Marshall interview, and uh, they're time stamped according to the video. So I'll know how we're progressing through this, uh, and probably be able to call it um, before uh, as we recognize whether it's going to be two episodes. But I can almost guarantee you that it will be. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the first thing I think we should probably do is, Dr. Matza, please, please let everybody know a little bit about yourself. Can you give us the, the short version of your CV? Because as everyone knows and as is pointed out frequently, Mark and I are unlettered lay-nothings, and you you are in fact not an unlet, unlettered lay-nothing. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and your CV? Uh, well, for the last 14 years, I taught all places at an evangelical Christian university in Southern California. Uh, They were very tolerant of me for a while, uh, but actually I'm currently unemployed at the moment. So if anybody wants to hire an unemployed medievalist, uh, please (laughs) look me up. (laughs) Uh, But I got my PhD from the uh, City University of New York, from the Graduate Center, uh, a bastion of uh, all things leftist, so again, uh, God has a, has a funny way of putting me in places where I don't fit in. Um, but I'm a former New Yorker, and if I don't get my coffee, uh, you will hear that in my voice. <laughs> um, and let's see what else. Um, well, my, my book that I came out with three years ago from Angelico Press is called The Scholastics and the Jews. And really what it is, is among other things, it's, as far as I know, the first uh, English language biography of St. Raymond of Penyafort in almost a hundred years. 
So I was very happy to get that done. And I think that uh, St. Raymond of Penufort interceded to Our Lady to help me to uh, come up with this thesis of mine. Amen to that. I would have to agree. St. Raymond, um, St. Raymond is, he is invoked and he is hard at work in terms of this cause. I did a novena to him um, earlier in February and um, at, he, as it, if the listeners don't remember or don't know, St. Raymond is the patron saint of canon lawyers and canon law. So he is obviously highly engaged in this. So that's absolutely wonderful. And your PhD is in, is it medie- medieval history? It, it is. It's medieval history. I minored in ancient history. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was at the Graduate Center, we started a group called Car- Christianity and Rationality, the Interaction of Theology, Art, and Science. Uh, so uh, I was very privileged to meet like-minded Catholics at, of all places in Midtown Manhattan. And um, yes, yeah, so my, my uh, major was medieval and my dissertation was uh, basically on St. Raymond of Penufort and his mission to the Jews and Muslims. Mm. And also his, um, a lot of people don't know that in the 12th century, there were a lot of handbooks that were done on preaching and confession. And I really tried to debunk what they were pushing in grad school, that St. Raymond was a Jew hater, and that uh, they say all kind of terrible things about him. But if you look at his uh, writings, he wanted to treat the Jews as sort of an extension of the penitent and the confessional. And so he had a lot of charity in his heart. And uh, and of course, he was uh, one of the master generals of the Dominican order. Uh, And he he reorganized their constitution, which lasted for hundreds of years. And as you guys probably already know, uh, St. Raymond of Penafort, he revised canon law, which lasted for hundreds hundreds of years, uh, up until 1917. Yes, a lot of people don't realize that up until 1917, there really wasn't one formalized codex in the sense that the 1917 code was promulgated. It was just kind of, canon law was much more nebulous before 1917. And of course, now we're under, we're under 1983, warts and all. Um, And this is, I'm sure people remember, and I think it's in my very first video, I make the point that you know, you. This is not the time or place to you know go off on a massive critique of the eighty-three code. Of course, the eighty-three code has problems, but the eighty-three code is what we're under. So all the citations that we make, all the work that we do, I mean, sometimes it's interesting to look up the seventeen code, but eighty-three is what you have to be going off of because that is what is in force right now. So um, a very important thing to remember, but it's, it's strange to think that just barely over a hundred years ago, the church was still operating by and large on St. Raymond's, um, his, his codex, which was, like I said, much more nebulous. And, um, it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And well, we can, we can do another whole show on that, but, uh, (laughs) but I'd, I'd encourage everybody to, to look up your book and, and the, the work you've done on, on St. Raymond in terms of his interactions with the Jews, that sounds absolutely fascinating because goodness knows that's, that's so important right now. It's, 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 a, it's a topic that nobody wants to talk about. And, you know, you've got anti-Pope Bergoglio constantly going and saying that proselytism is a sin, et cetera, et cetera, which is, you know, just another one of the massive uh, 
parts of the massive visible data set that something is terribly, terribly, terribly wrong, um, denying the Great Commission seems to be a disqualifier of uh, <laughs> being, being um, under the supernatural protection vis-a-vis -vis the Petrine office. So, fascinating. Thank you. We are so glad you're here. Mark, time's a waste and we should, we should jump right in. Where do you want to start? That's, that's actually a good starting off point right there because uh, the good doctor, uh, just as uh, Anne and myself, the, the real uh, impetus for digging in and looking for evidence and what's really going on here is in, is in fact that Jorge Bergoglio simply does not demonstrate uh, holding the uh, Petrine promises and does not act like a valid pontiff. And we see um, all sorts of heresy on a near daily basis. And just it, it goes right back to the beginning of all this and something's not right. And that makes you look a little harder at the situation. Um, and from there, I think probably the first thing that came up in the Taylor Marshall interview as as uh, you're, you're looking for evidence of what's really going on, we come to the uh, Archbishop Gantzwein speech at the Greg in May of 2016. Uh, so maybe you want to start there, Professor. Sure thing. So the, the thing is, you know, you read the speech by Archbishop Georg Gantzwein, the personal secretary of uh, Joseph Ratzinger for years and years and years and years. Uh, and uh, you kind of you got to think that if he says something, it's got something related to Duda Benedict. That, that, and he says something, and his praise of Benedict is effusive. Um, <laughs> That's putting it mildly. <laughs> <laughs> and al analogizing like, his actions to to the Immaculate Conception. I mean, for Mark and I, that was just both. What? <laughs> yeah, continue. Go right? ahead. He says here, uh, when I think about what Benedict did. Uh, I think uh, it makes me think of the of John Dunn's Scotus, how he justified the divine decree for the immaculate conception of the Mother of God, decuit patuit fecit. That is to say, it was fitting because it was reasonable. God could do it, therefore he did it. Uh, I apply the axiom to the decision to resign. So now. As I said on Taylor Marshall's show. But we should believe everyone who says this is just like a regular everyday resignation. There's nothing going on here. <laughs> yeah, the, the dichotomy between all these disparate voices is just, it, something is off, you know, and, and something is off to use so many superlatives to describe that, that, a, that a bishop retired. I mean, even if the bishop is the pope. I mean, the, 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 listen to the, the words that he uses here. Uh, he says, it, well, the main thing, like I said, or you guys said, he, he compares it to the Immaculate Conception. He says, um, uh, profoundly transformed, referring to the Roman See, that Benedict had extraordinary courage, daring, spectacular, unexpected, a new phase, a turning point, historic, entirely different, never been a step like it, unprecedented. Just because a bishop retired? <laughs> well, I, I know every time it, every time in my life when I've quit a job, and I've not quit many jobs, but every time I've quit a job, exactly those words were deployed, you know. <laughs> Immaculate conception, 
completely totally unprecedented yeah i mean it this was not a gregory the 12th situation this was not a um a clement the fifth situation that's and they, they they're just gantwine and everyone else i mean it's just it, we're being beaten over the head with this and it's obvious that that's the case it's completely unprecedented so the argument that well this is just like every other every other um resignation and i i really appreciate pope benedict pointing out in this latest um seawall text that up until not too terribly long ago bishops didn't didn't retire like this that the whole the whole um notion of the bishop emeritus i think a lot of people don't realize historically speaking this is a brand new innovation it's it's decades old now but it's a brand new innovation and pope benedict himself points that out but we'll get into this whole you know distinction between the papacy and the episcopacy because that's a big distinction but carry on so, so you've got these reactions to uh, Archbishop Ganschwein's uh, musings, and so in my in my article that you were kind enough to post at your site, um, for example, you've got Robert Moynihan of Inside the Vatican, who uh, basically there he says there is one Pope and one Petrine ministry. End of story. So he's not happy about what Ganschwein is saying about what Benedict did. Uh, and then historian Roberto Di Matei. And yet, ironically, he's quite right in his statement. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> it's exactly true, yeah. <laughs> um, and he says, well, in addition, Moynihan says, you know, both the Catholic left and the Catholic right are equally disturbed by Ganschwein's remarks. Uh, and it adds, it adds to the scandal of Catholics not knowing who our real Pope is. And then parenthetically, uh, Moynihan uh, assures everybody that it is Francis, in case you're wondering. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, uh, he. Uh, but let me move on to the other Roberto, uh, Roberto Di Mattei, and this. I found this quote from him, from um, Sandro Magister's blog, and this is from 2014. So this is this is very early on. This is uh, Ganschwein, and he says here, um, there does not exist except in the imagination of some theologians, a spiritual papacy distinct from the juridical papacy. Um, and, you know, again, he's, he's upset here that Benedict has taken the title of emeritus. And he says that, you know, it's clear from that word, Pope Emeritus, that the noun Pope, right, prevails over the adjective emeritus. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, that's why he's still wearing white, why he still gives apostolic blessings, why he's never left the Vatican, mm-hmm. uh, and why he's still referred to as his holiness, right? Um, and then he goes on to say here that, well, you know, Roberto Di Matei is trying to say that what Taylor Marshall also pointed out is that according to Catholic theology, there is no indelible mark on your soul because you're, because you're made a pope. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and so even a retired bishop, which we'll get into later, is still a, a bishop, even yes. if uh, he's no longer attached to an Episcopal see. Um, so um, that's so that's such a critical mm-hmm. precision. And a lot of people are thrown by this because they don't understand it. People think and I can see how they can make this mistake. They think that the papacy is the fourth level of major orders and the major orders are deacon, 
priest, bishop, and people wrongly think that when when a man is elected and becomes the pope, that that is a fourth level. It, it's not. It's not an indelible. Uh, it's not an indelible mark. The way that being ordained a deacon is indelible, and then being ordained a priest is indelible, and then being elevated and consecrated a bishop is indelible. The papacy is juridical. It is. It's. It's a juridical office that's established by Christ Almighty. So it's completely unique in that sense, and then it's doubly unique on top of that because it does have this unique in in all the universe negative supernatural protection but a pope is not he's not anointed with oil he's crowned he's coronated it is a juridical office and that is precisely why a pope can can resign celestine v validly resigned gregory the 12th validly resigned Pope Benedict did not validly resign, and that is the entire crux of this. This is the entire crux of the argument. Um, you can certainly the Latin is is a thing, but it, it's a side thing. It's an interesting, informative, additional appended data set, but it's not it's not the main argument. The main argument is the resignate the attempted sort of resignation of of Pope Benedict, and you've you've opened the door on that. Well, you guys gave me the tools in the sense that uh, it was you guys that first introduced me to uh, Archbishop Miller's uh, opus, <laughs> which uh, you, you prodded everybody. It's twelve bucks on Kindle or Google Play. Go get it. Go get it. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> uh, and uh, of course, as a historian, I'm trained to go through it with a fine tooth comb and and try to unpack all the big words in there and. Uh, also, you guys were the ones that uh, introduced the world, as, as far as I know, to Eind, how do we say it in German? Einstander Einheit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 Sounds like a Nazi vaudeville act or something. Oh, well said. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, um, uh, what was I going to say? So, yeah, in that book, I mean, he, he it, it, uh, the 1977... Benedict. I mean, at the time he was Cardinal Ratzinger or Joseph Ratzinger, not even Cardinal yet, uh, as far as I remember. And it was the 80th birthday of uh, Pope Paul VI. And ah, yes. it, it maybe maybe later on we can um, can talk about um, how you can understand Ratzinger today, perhaps by understanding Ratzinger in 1977 and the vocabulary uh, that he uses. But um, just just to, to tie the knot on um, the reaction to. Uh, Archbishop Ganschwein. Um, in my article, I also cited George Weigel, right, the, the neocon, mm -hmm. uh, famous famous biographer of John Paul II, and he also is upset by this Pope Emeritus business. And he he basically says here that um, Archbishop Ganschwein's reference to title and vesture uh, confirms what many of us thought three years ago: the decisions about these matters made in 2013 were mistaken. Mm -hmm. Yes, the former bishop of a diocese is its bishop emeritus, quote unquote, while he lives, for he retains the indelible character of Episcopal ordination. Yes. But there is no such character to the Petrine office. One either holds the office of Peter or one doesn't, and it thoroughly muddies the water to suggest that there is any proper analogy between a retired diocesan bishop and a pope who has abdicated. Now, 
when Weigel says this, he's saying this in June of 2016 in response to the May 2016 uh, speech at the Greg mm-hmm. by Ganschwein. But that's precisely the analogy that Benedict uses. Uh, probably the interview took place in 2016 and, or maybe earlier, but it was published in 2017 by Peter Seewald, right? Benedict Last Testament. Yes. This long right. interview with Benedict. And that's precisely the uh, analogy that he uses uh, between you know the retired bishop and bishop, um, and it's also the analogy that he uses in in the snippets that have been released from the forthcoming um, English edition, which is already out in the German edition of the thousand-page uh, new latest biography of, P- of of Benedict by Peter Seewald. Right. Uh, and Mark, so, Mark, wasn't that in two thousand seventeen? Wasn't that one of the things? Now I. I came to the conclusion just very shortly after the Ganswine speech, because in fact, I pulled up Ed Penton's um, reportage and coverage of this speech and his headline, this is Ed Penton in the National Catholic Register, which is an EWTN property. Penton's headline on the Ganswine speech is Archbishop Ganswine, colon, Benedict XVI sees resignation as expanding the Petrine ministry. And I saw that, and it was just mic drop moment. Oh, I see what happened here. And you then you see Canon 188, and you see those two words, substantial error, just jump off the page at you. And you say, okay, I've known literally since the first moment, because I was in the piazza. I was in the piazza. In fact, I had I had arrived in Rome the day before the... the um, that the day before Pope Benedict announced his maneuver on the 11th, I had arrived in Rome on the 10th of February. And so literally the next day after I arrived, um, this bomb drops. I was in the piazza. You knew from, from instant one that something was completely wrong and horribly off with this. But you, I mean, you can't put it together, you know? You just, you just don't have enough data. I see Ed Penton's coverage of the Ganswein speech, and and then I see Canon 188, and I was like, oh, this is, okay, here it is. Here, here it is, right here in black and white. Mark, you took another year. You were in 17, and wasn't it, wasn't it that Last Testament uh, text that kind of brought you over? Well, I am, I am unlettered lay trash, so mm, it took me mm. another year, you know, forgive me, Anne. Um, <laughs> but yes, I couldn't, my issue was I couldn't square, uh, even after the, the, the speech from Archbishop uh, Ganswine, I couldn't square the Declaratio. I kept using the mistra- mistranslated English version of the Declaratio, and I couldn't see in it a way that uh, Benedict actually... Uh, did what we what we are now sure that that he did. It just I was reading, reading it and and not seeing a way that uh, well he said he says he resigned so he resigned. So it took me another year and a combination of rereading and understanding that even the Latin version of the Declaratio that is on the Vatican website today is not the same version that he read out. But also um, the words that he spoke at his last general audience mm, mm-hmm. on the 27th of February, um, uh, the day before that he got in the helicopter, are just stunning. And when you lay that out against uh, 
the uh, uh, the Gatswein speech. And also, um, by the way, the other thing I want to point out is that the 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 speech at the Greg in May of 2016, the the light bulbs that went off because of that really went back to the things we're talking about in terms of the retention of title, mm-hmm. the form of address, the retention of habit, the retention of residency. All those decisions were made. Think about this. In that uh, two-week or 16-day time span, whatever it was, between him reading out the Declaratio, he's still Pope, between then and the 28th of February, all these decisions were made. They all came out, uh, retention of the fisherman's ring. All of these things came out on different days as we proceeded through that. I don't even know what you'd call that period there. but And then, there, and then shortly after that, right, there was uh, those questions where they asked him, why do you wear white and this? Oh, well, we couldn't find anything else, you know, in the closet. Right. There were no other clothes available. Yeah. There are no black cassocks in Rome. I mean, that... And this is actually a point. This is a very serious point. That is such a, an obvious, bold-faced lie that th- that in and of itself has a serious meaning. And, and you know, generally, that's used as a point of departure um, to point to the possibility of coercion. How, how could you even say something like that? You know, I, I had to quit because... I was too tired to make the flight to Brazil to World Youth Day. So I had to retire. That's another one. And the third one he said was, oh, yes, there's been sodomite. There was sodomite infiltration into the Roman Curia. There were four or five of them, and I took care of it. No, it's probably four out of five. And that's not an exaggeration. In fact, that's probably lowballing it. For him to say that is, it's again, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of the images of the, the POWs in Vietnam who are, you know, spe- who are spelling out in Morse code with their blinking torture, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's things that are so stunning like that. So just so stunningly false that you're saying, Something is really, really wrong in this situation. And I'm really glad, Mark, that you brought up that 17-day interstitial period from the 11th to the 28th of February. I think this is a really important concept because a lot of people say, well, and this is actually a valid point legally, what Pope Benedict says about anything that went on seven years ago now is it technically isn't really germane because this this whole notion of law being this ginormous ex post facto situation that's not the case legally juridically what what is germane and what is what is contained in the body of legal evidence about all of this is actually what happened between the 11th and the 28th at 8 p.m. What did he say? What did he do? What decisions did he make? While absolutely everyone on the planet agrees that he was the one and only living pope, you're in this this window of legal germanity. And if, if I just made up that word, and that's not really a word, I apologize, but I think it's a word, germanity. Is it germane? Yes, what he did in that window, and that speaks to, again, as, as Mark mentioned, the final audience on the 27th of February. 
again, I was there because I was in Rome at the time. I didn't speak Italian at the time. Not that I particularly speak Italian now, but I, I spoke no Italian at the time. So I was there present, but I didn't, I didn't hear what he was saying because he was speaking in Italian. And so it was only after the fact that you go back and you reread that and you're just sitting there and your jaws on the table reading what he's saying. I'm not leaving. I'm staying. Da, 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 always and forever. Always and forever. <laughs> it, it, and, and if you want a smoking gun, and I've made this point to other people, if you want a, a legal smoking gun, that, that last address on the 27th, that's it. He, he basically makes it clear what, what he was doing. The only piece that we were missing is, is a piece that now I'm convinced that Dr. Matza is now filled in. What did he do? He, he detached the papacy from, from Rome physically and said, I'm going to resign being, being the Bishop of Rome let someone else be the bishop of Rome. He's going to do all the administrative stuff. I'm going to go over here and wink, wink, I'll be the Pope, wink, wink, emeritus. Now, the fascinating question, and we do need to delve into this because I get a lot of mail, both, both friendly and not so friendly, about this question about his motives. Now, again, technically, legally, his motives don't matter. All that matters is the objective reality. Who's the Pope? Who is the Pope? But it's a very interesting question, and it, it potentially can scandalize people one way or the other. What, what was he doing? Is, is, this, is this Ratzinger playing four-dimensional chess? Or is this, as I hold, I think this is the divine providence playing four-dimensional chess. Um, and I, Mark, don't let me, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but Mark and I have read a lot of mid-20th century German theology over the past year and a half. And guys, it's not pretty. It is not pretty. And so it's really difficult to just, you know, look at the fact that Ratzinger was this liberal at Vatican II, that he was a paratus wearing a suit and tie at Vatican II. All of this German theological garbage. Now he, yeah, he was on the he was on the far right, quote unquote, in terms of the German Theological Academy, folks. When I tell you that that is damning with faint praise, that that is putting it mildly to say, well, yeah, he was in the the late twentieth century German Theological Academy, but he he was the most orthodox of them. He was to the right of Hans Kung. He was to the right of Hans Kung. Yes. <laughs> That's so good, I, no? This is, <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. I think, actually a good, uh, a good spot to, act, to, to go ahead and, and talk about or delve into the, the, the thesis and the book by Archbishop Michael J. Miller, uh, because that uh, really is key. And, I mean, I've long since looked at this work as being quite providential in itself, because without it, I don't know that we'd have a single source uh, with thousands of annotations uh, that really cataloging um, all of this thought and all of the dialogue of the mid 20th century uh, German new theology, uh, what was going on. And guess what the talk of the town was among these German theologians of the mid 20th century? I can't even begin to guess. <laughs> It was, of course, the the what is the intrinsic nature 
of the papacy, what it what what portion of it was divinely instituted, and is there any portion of it that could be changed depending on the changing needs of of mankind? Well, I mean. Isn't that diplomatic of you to, to frame it as a question in the book, uh, it, in, the, in the dissertation? I mean, it really isn't even a question about changing the papacy. They're, they're all on board with the idea that the papacy has to be, uh, may I be permitted to quote from the 27 February final audience, fundamentally transformed. It has to be fundamentally transformed. Right. I, yeah, so... And, um, and we should say there were there were... Uh, there were th- theologians even to the left of this um, who who said that the papacy could actually be eliminated altogether. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, here's a here's a money quote uh, from page 195. Uh, another way of making the same point is to distinguish between the Petrine ministry or function and the papacy. Hmm. <laughs> I wonder what that could lead to. What could that be? Oh, here's another one. For these theologians, the papacy has been and is the historical realization of the Petrine ministry. The two realities are, however, conceptually distinct. Yep. 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 And I mean, understand, we're saying these quotes. We're not agreeing with this craziness. This is crazy German mid to late 20th century theology. This is what they're all on board with. And um, yeah. they were normalizing it, you might say. Yeah, yeah, they were they were getting getting everybody kind of primed and ready for this. And it's all done. It's all framed within the concept and idea of we have to appease the Lutherans. Lutherans first and foremost, and then and then we also have to appease the Anglicans. But it's really the driving forces. They they're desperate to get the Lutherans back in, and then lo and behold, fast forward to the year of our Lord, two thousand and thirteen, and who who is the absolute instigator? Whose wretched face is all over all of this? Walter Casper, who is by the way the most heavily cited person. I believe in the Miller dissertation. It's Walter Casper, um, who's who's awful. And why do they want the Lutherans in? Do they have any interest in in you know genuine genuine ecumenism and and getting separated brethren back in? Oh no no, they want the Kirchensteuer. They want the German church tax money because that is billions and billions and billions a year. They're hemorrhaging because Germany exists in a state of basically simony. You have to pay the church tax. And if you don't, you are, you are excommunicated. You can't get, you can't get baptism. You can't get a funeral. You can't get anything. And so um, it's, it's. That's an important, that's an important point you're making, Anne, about this, um, the Lutheran angle to this. Mm Mm-hmm. Because uh, let, me, let, me, let me give you guys another money quote. Uh, it's not from Miller's book, but it's from uh, an ecumenical, one of those ecumenical dialogue books mm-hmm. uh, put together by Lutherans and Catholics. Listen to this. The Lutheran Roman Catholic dialogues have offered a new way of approaching the conversation on the role of the modern papacy, wait for it, by separating the Petrine function mm-hmm. of Christian ministry from the Petrine primacy claimed by the Pope. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, there you have in germ form in a, in a weird leftist ecumenical Lutheran thing, what, what, you know, what, what Benedict actually might have done by separating the primacy from the, just the, the ministry, so to speak. But we can get into more of that later. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's a tough thing, and it's kind of heartbreaking in a sense, because we, we love Pope Benedict. I mean, you know, you, you go on YouTube and you bring up the videos of when he, was first, um, when he was first elected, and he walks out on the loggia, and he's so humble, and he's so lovely, and, you know, he's, he's by, by all accounts, um, I know multiple people who, who know him personally, both while he's been the Pope and knew him before when he was just another, another guy in Rome. By all accounts, he is an absolutely lovely, lovely, charming, wonderful man. And, and, and he is the Holy Father. And so we love him because he's the Holy Father. But I really think it's a mistake to go down the rabbit hole of saying that this is a massive four-dimensional chess plan that he that he has concocted and done this thing with you know motives that are as pure as the wind-driven snow i really think you're setting yourself up for a disappointment if if you go at it that way and then also i think that you're not going to be praying for him in in quite the way that you should because it seems to me that he's got he's got the world on his shoulders right now as a 93 year old man he really needs to do something before he dies to try to make this right and try to undo this it seems to me and we should be we should be praying for him in that sense i think you have to give the credit, as always, of this situation, the fact that, yes, it does appear that he has saved the papacy in a certain sense. And he, he has absolutely um, kept Holy Mother Church um, spotless in, in this time, while now Bergoglio and the Sodomite Freemasons are clearly building the anti-church. It's it's right there. That's the anti-church, and that what Pope Benedict has done has put a big wall of defense around the spotless bride of Christ, the one true church. That the genius in all of this is the divine providence. I I think that that Pope Benedict, like all of us, is you know a player in all this. And, you know, you look, we all look back at our own lives and how we've stumbled throughout our own lives, but the divine providence brings us to where we need to be in the moment. And you look back on your life and say, man, I was kind of screwed up back then, but look how everything worked out so beautifully. I think that's what's going on here. Now, I'll be quiet. And Dr. Matza, what do you think about that? <laughs> well, I would just, I would, I would add a caveat. Now, I agree with you guys that uh, Joseph Ratzinger's theology is not the theology of Pope St. Pius X. (laughs) (laughs) But um, even at the height of the craziness, like let's say when he gave his speech on the nature and commission of the Petrine ministry on the occasion of the 80th birthday of Pope Paul VI in October of 1977, even though, you know, he was with Casper and Kung and Rahner and all these guys, um, I, I do think personally that he was to the right and that he does reject most of the craziness because he says here, let me read you this quote. He says, "Um, in keeping with the three persons in God, the argument went, the church must also be led by a college of three. Members of the triumvirate acting together would be the Pope. Uh, There was no lack of ingenious speculations uh, that uh, discovered that in this way, a Roman Catholic, he refers to 
he refers to the uh, Russian theologian Soloviev, uh, who wrote a book called The Antichrist, in which a, a, a troika <laughs> of a Roman Catholic, an Orthodox, and a Protestant could together form the papacy, so to speak. But he, he says, in reaction to that, he says, is this then the reconciliation of collegiality and primacy? The answer to the question posed by our subject, the primacy of the Pope and the unity of the people of God. And he, this, is, this is important what he says next. Although we need not conclude that such reflections are entirely sterile and useless, mm -hmm. it, is, it is plain that they are a distortion of Trinitarian doctrine and an intolerably oversimplified fusion of creed. So he does reject, even at the height of the 70s, Yes. He does reject this crazy idea that you could have multiple popes at the same time. He calls it a distortion of Trinitarian doctrine. So yes, how do you reconcile that? I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, speaking exactly to that passage. So when I first published that, and I think, Mark, we were, you know, we basically, a lot of times, we just simultaneously publish things. I think maybe Mark found that one. I can't remember. It, it's all it's all a blur now. But we were heavily criticized for publishing that because saying, "Look, he, he yeah he opens this paper with this whole troika thing, but then he walks it right back." And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. This is and you know my German. That's a device. That's a, a device. device. My German academic correspondence told me right away, this is a classic German Academy device. It's moving the Overton window. You open a position paper, a thesis, an essay, whatever it is, you open it with something that's crazy pants off off on the, on the on the margins. You open with that. Then you walk it back and say, well, I don't advocate anything that's that crazy. But here is what I do say. And what you're doing is you're shifting you're shifting the Overton window. And it is it's a device. Um, and so that's that is why that's important. I mean, well, I could go ahead. So this is what this is my take. Okay, so he he says that what we need is something clearer. In other words, we've we've done the theology of communion, and of course Ratzinger is a big communio guy, mm -hmm. right? But but, <laughs> but no less important, so to speak, right, is the theology of personality, not just collegiality, but personality. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what he goes on to do in the next few paragraphs here is practically every other word out of his mouth is this word responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, he says here that the papacy, basically, is the responsibility of a person. Now, he doesn't mean in the colloquial use of the term person or the colloquial use of the term responsibility. Um, he's meaning it like in this deep ontological, theological type thing, right? He says here that uh, martyrdom is a response to the cross of the named individual who is personally responsible. The Petrine theology Right is uh, the is uh, begins with the name of the one who, in particular, and as a person, uttered profession of faith. The profession of faith exists only as something for which someone is personally responsible. Uh, and then in the next paragraph, it's like lighting up with responsibility. The we unity of Christians, which God instituted, uh, blah blah blah, uh, in turn maintained by personal bearers of responsibility mm -hmm. for this is for this unity, and it is once again personified in Peter are made of him as a person with personal responsibility. Peter becomes the institution. 
this institution can only exist as a person in particular and in personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, he abides in obedience and thus in personal responsibility for Christ, professing the Lord's death and resurrection is his whole commission and personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. And lastly, this personal responsibility forms the heart of the doctrine of papal primacy. Now, why am I making such a big deal out of this English word uh, pers- uh, uh, responsibility? Uh, because he uses the German word, um, and again, for the German people will have to forgive me for butchering this, Verantwortung uh, is how I would pronounce it. And I, it's the word he uses in 1977 in the speech, which he repeats over and over again. But it's also the word that he uses in answering Seewald in the 2017 book, uh-huh. Last Testament. Mm-hmm. And this is important because uh, this is what first sort of keyed me in on, on this whole business because what what uh, benedict says here is and if you guys will indulge me i'll, I'll read these two paragraphs um it's funny so, i've got it on my screen right now i knew oh, this was great. leading to this <laughs> great uh we, I'm, I'm a telepath i'm glad you picked up on that okay so um uh, seawald puts a very simple question to papa benedetto here right he says um uh, is a slowdown in the ability to perform reason enough to climb down from the chair of Peter? And the correct answer here is yes, because <laughs> that's what he said when he, when he in his declaratio, right? But Ratzinger being Ratzinger, he doesn't give a simple yes. He says, uh, one can, of course, make that accusation, but it would be a functional misunderstanding. The follower of Peter is not merely bound to a function. The office enters into your very being not the only criterion. Uh, and then um, Seawold presses him again uh, and says, one objection is that the papacy has been secularized by the resignation, that it is no longer a unique office, but an office like any other. And listen to what Benedict says in reply, because this is extremely important. He says, I had to consider whether or not functionalism would completely encroach on the papacy. Earlier, bishops were not allowed to resign. A number of bishops said, I am a father. And that I'll stay, because you can't simply stop being a father. Stopping is a functionalization and secularization, something from the sort of concept of public office that shouldn't apply to a bishop. To that, I must reply, even a father's role stops. Of course, a father does not stop being a father, but he is relieved of concrete responsibility. In a, a father, in a deep inward sense, in a particular relationship which has responsibility, but not with day-to-day tasks as such, if he steps down, he remains in an inner sense within the responsibility he took on, but not in the function. And so one comes to understand that the office of the Pope has lost none of its greatness. And that's that. So this quote does it for me. Yeah. So that that the, the the last sentence there that you read, he he actually jumped ahead to he was talking about bishops, he was talking about fathers, and then he breaks and starts talking about uh, the pope and gets back to uh, let me just pick it up here. Um, a bishop is the bearer of a sacramental mi- mission, which remains binding on him inwardly but on the other hand does not have to keep him in his function forever. And so I think it is also clear that the Pope is no Superman 
and his mere existence is not sufficient to conduct his role. Rather, he likewise exercises a function. If he steps down, he remains in an inner sense within the responsibility he took on, but not in the function. So the question for a layperson to ask is, well, what does he mean by responsibility? And so that's where I went back to that speech from 1977, where he's using the word responsibility all over the place, because that's the essence of the papacy. So you put two and two together, and what I got was, he's telling us I'm still Pope, because he's still got the responsibility. So the ontological responsibility, you know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's there's another um, there's another the paper that he opens with the troika hypothesis and then walks it back concludes and Mark write this down this will have to go in the show notes um, we've posted this before but we'll we'll cover it again um, the it, he, the way he concludes that paper is with this whole suffering at the foot of the cross that this is this is the ultimate manifestation of of the papacy is be is suffering 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 at the, uh, humiliation also he uses the word humiliation several times and my german correspondent sent this to me and they said Anne, look we think that this is extraordinarily important because what we think that he has done and this this meshes exactly with your thesis dr matza is that w- what he's thought in his mind is that by doing this that he is the suffering, humiliated pope, and therefore he's actually a species of uber-pope. And you look at that and you say, oh, man. And so, I mean, that's, that's why I can't get on the 4D chess bandwagon at all. Here, in 1977, in that speech, he says, the office of the papacy is a cross. Yes. Indeed, the greatest of all crosses. For what can be said to pertain more to the cross and anxiety of the soul than the care and personal responsibility for all the churches? Uh, uh, and it goes on to say that attachment to the word and will of God because of the Lord is what makes the sedes, meaning the chair, a cross, and thus proves the vicar to be representative of Christ. But at his, at his last general audience, guys, what does he say? I am not abandoning the cross, mm-hmm. but remaining in a new way at the side of the crucified, crucified Lord. Lord. Yep. Mm-hmm. Translation, I'm still Pope. The office yep. of the papacy is a cross. I'm not leaving the cross. Yep. Uh, the office of the papacy is a cross. I'm not leaving the cross. Therefore, it's a, it's, it's a logical one, two, three right there. Um, yeah, it's and in the last seven years, it's just gotten clearer and clearer and clearer as, as is the case when you've got people praying and begging God, please, you know, show us this. Amite lucem tuum, ad veritatum tuum. We pray this every day at the prayers of the foot of the altar. Um, Amit your light, emite lucem tuum, et veritatum tuum, and your truth. Amit your light and your truth. Illuminate. Light this up. Show us what's going on. And you know, the thing is, is that the truth always outs. Always. And so what now, what we can like loop back to is kind of where we started. Visibility. And not even 
because I mean, we can we can tear apart the visibility of what Pope Benedict has done. Obviously, we can do that for days and days and days. Let's talk about the visibility, the words of Bergoglio himself, who from literally the first instance that he was brought out onto the loggia on 13 March 2013, what did everybody instantly notice that he did not do? Well, first of all, as everybody in Rome said, he was naked. Um, he was not wearing the mozzetta. He w- they said he, liturgically, he's standing there naked. He's standing there naked. But what was even more telling is how did he refer to himself exclusively? And this goes to your thesis, Dr. Matza. He only called himself what? The Bishop, Bishop of, of Rome. Rome. Bishop of Rome. Yep, and that's exactly your thesis, Dr. Matza. And I think that... Well, that, mm-hmm. go, well I just want to say that when I... You know, I you see. I guess start getting these emails from people saying you've got to, you got to, um, if you can get somewhere and listen to Taylor Marshall because this guy, your name has been brought up, and this guy Edmund Matza has been talking about, and it sounds like this Dr. Matza guy is is gonna go Benedict as Pope here in a second, and then I read you send me your paper and I read your paper and everything about what you said pass the sniff test with me because it meshes exactly with the observable, visible evidence, including everything that Bergoglio has done in only referring to himself as the Bishop of Rome. Hey, the new question is, is is uh, is Francis the Pope? And my response is, well, sweetie, check, check the Vatican phone book. And the answer is now right there. He's removed. He removed all of the titles from his page in the what's essentially the Vatican phone book. Put the put all of the historical titles in a footnote in like five point font at the bottom of the page under the header historical titles. He, I mean, he's been shunning. He's don't call me Holy Father. There's numerous instances of him telling people, don't call me Holy Father. Is it because this is this is eating away at Bergoglio's conscience? No, it's because even malefactors, and this is so often the case, even malefactors eventually testify to what it is that they are and what it is that they're up to. And we can all look back to instances in this in our own personal lives people, bad people that we've crossed paths with, and then you look back after the fact and you say, you know, the red flags were there. In fact, so-and-so was virtually, you know, telegraphing this, skywriting it, who and what they were and who and, and what their intentions were. And, you know, we just say, oh, oh, that's no big deal. Ha ha. That's a cute joke. Um, but that's not the <laughs> that's clearly not the case. It's not the case in, in everyday life, and it's not the case here. Bergoglio has been skywriting this from literally the first minute of his anti-papacy. God so, is good. God is good, will, yeah. God is good. He will always make sure that uh, the visibility is there for those with eyes to see. And remember that last part, for those with eyes to see. And that is, that, that's biblical. I mean, you 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 need to have your eyes open and know what to look for and have the ability to see that something is 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 a miss here and use your rational intellect it's expected of you yeah, it's expected of you. mark that they won't uh, the sheep will not follow the voice of the hireling right my sheep know me they will they, they don't they, the hireling they will not follow voice of a stranger 
yeah, Vocem Alienorum. That's, that was my coming out essay title, Vocem Alienorum, The Voice of the Stranger, The Good Shepherd Discourse. And that, that's, my, um, that's my retort to anybody who comes to me and says, who in the hell do you think you are? And, you know, my first I quote Captain James T. Kirk and I say, who do I have to be? And then I come back first and foremost with The Good Shepherd Discourse. It's, it's the sheep the sheep themselves individually must discern the voice of the shepherd because we're specifically warned faithless hirelings wolves etc 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 it's on the sheep and intuitively this this makes perfect sense because when we all go to our particular judgment we will stand there naked and alone before before christ jesus it's not going to be well the bishop said this and i can't i'm not a I don't have a degree in in theology, so I can't possibly make any determination about this. No, sorry, that's a. I'm sorry, it's a cop out. It's a cop out, and so. Says in Canon 748, section one, I quote: "All persons, all persons, are bound to seek the truth in those things which regard God and His Church, mm. and by virtue of divine law." are bound by the obligation and possess the right of embracing and observing the truth which they have come to know. Put, put mm. it on my headstone. Put it on my headstone. <laughs> That's, ooh. Mark, we're going to so have to if, post if you that guys would like, <laughs> <laughs> If you guys would like, I can kind of take you into how I got into this thesis if you want. I would absolutely love that, yes. I want to make sure that we touch on... Um, uh, there was one last uh, uh, note I had here from the, tw the 2017 Seawald interview, um, which I think led into some discussion uh, on the prophecy of Malachi, and maybe you can hit on that. But the, the, the quote here from uh, Benedict, the, the question from Seawald was, are you the last of a series of popes as we have known the office so far? And Benedict responds, anything could be what <laughs> <laughs> everything's fine completely normal move along move along yeah <laughs> so professor maybe you could comment on that and then move into the prophecy of malachi and and take us from there sure well uh i i, I basically read that same quote yesterday to dr marshall and i was also flabbergasted uh anything can be uh <laughs> And what I make of that, and then I subsequently learned that it's also in Sochi's book, um, is, is Benedict still Pope? That that was a line. That oh, wait, 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 wait. You, do, do you know about that controversy? That is not the title of that book. Your publisher, Angelico Press, changed it from a statement, Benedict is still Pope, to uh -huh. a question against Sochi's wishes and against the translators wishes but angelico had the final say and they said we think this will sell better if we take the diplomatic route and change it to a question the, the actual italian title was why he's still pope why he's still pope yes yes mm -hmm. why he mm -hmm. is still pope not is he still pope so <laughs> just a little yeah. just a little interesting inside baseball there Sure, sure. Well, the thing of it is this. So um, uh, it's according to the prophecy of Malachi, right? Uh, if you go down through all the different popes, 
uh, you get to the glory of the olive, and then chronologically that would coincide with the pontificate of uh, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. Um, and and so and and then the final uh, pope figure is right that Peter the Roman. Um, you guys correct me here. He's going to tend the sheep during a time of tribulation. Is that what it says? I believe so. Yes. Okay. So, uh, so the thing of it is, you have to ask yourself if, if, if Seawald says to Pope Benedict that this is how we've known the office up to this, up to this oh, so far, <laughs> uh, will it change now? And Pope Benedict says, well, anything yeah, could happen, or it, it can be. Not, uh, so what I get from that is that it only confirms this, this, this idea that, that, that we have here, that he has separated the primacy from the Bishop of Rome, from the Episcopal See of Rome. And of course, that's that's changing the office as we have known it thus far, right, for the last 2,000 years. Um, and, and also, I think that's why the the Peter the Roman, why the Roman? Mm-hmm. Almost, as if, almost as if one day, Peter, whoever that Peter is, or the the, uh, the sea will restore the, uh, the keys back to the See of Rome, perhaps. Right. But obviously... It, strikes me that Rome is at issue here and isn't that funny (laughs) well I I mean it's so interesting because it meshes and illuminates so beautifully scripture that says or or prophecy that says that Rome will become the see of the antichrist and you say okay this is now I mean that was just a huge light bulb with your thesis doctor where you're saying Maybe if this is the run up to the big show, the divine providence is in fact getting the papacy delinked from what is very clearly, arguably, the see of the Antichrist. It's at least the anti-church is present. That's that's not even debatable among intelligent people. The the anti-church, the anti-church, is present as Father Linus Clovis so beautifully put it. It is, it is undeniable that the church and the anti-church today occupy the same juridical, sacramental, and liturgical space. So the, the anti-church is present right now. I'm of, a, of the opinion, especially given the, the corona cold situation, that this is the great eclipse this is, this is clearly the church in eclipse. It is horrifically visible but it's covered and it's it's precisely so visible because it is covered i mean people think that eclipse means that something is concealed and that's not the case at all when there is an eclipse whether it be a lunar eclipse or a solar eclipse good heavens you're you're looking up you're looking up at the sky gape jawed pointing at it saying oh my gosh look at that you know it's it's the opposite of of invisibility it's a covering and it's a going into shadow but it's profoundly visible and striking and terrifying and you know obviously what we've just come through with you know um with holy week and oh the the horrific horrific evil spectacles that anti-pope bergoglio did um through lent and through holy week and oh my goodness i mean if if this isn't the the church in eclipse good heavens i don't i don't even know what is the entire the entire church under interdict and you know half the human race imprisoned 
and it is it's basically now criminalized in most parts of the world to offer the holy sacrifice of the mass publicly i mean what what more could you possibly possibly need to see that something is terribly wrong here and and proceeded ironically or not with open demon worship inside saint peter's yep. by bergoglio himself and and science is because you got to bring corona cold into everything science is now coming out that in fact Corona cold emerged almost exactly to the day that the Pachamama demon worship happened in early um, early October in Rome, and you just look at that and say, "Okay, it's it's on. You better stay confessed, folks." And have you guys? Did you did you recall that in August of last year, La Stampa? Uh, quoted uh, Bened- uh, not Benedetto, uh, Francesco, so to speak. Uh, what what do you fear most of all for our planet, right? Mm-hmm. And you know what his response was: the disappearance of biodiversity mm-hmm. and new lethal diseases. <laughs> mm. Yeah. You don't think he might have had some inside uh, inside information ahead oh, of time? Oh, oh, I think I think his physical attack on that little Chinese lady on the evening of December thirtieth you know we'll find out at the general judgment but boy oh boy he's he's bergoglio is so in bed with all of those new world order people he's he's got them basically living in the vatican jeffrey Sachs and what's the guy ehrlich and all these um you know depopulation people and abortionists and melinda gates and so on and so forth he's completely totally in bed with that with that crew I think when he attacked that little lady, he saw she was Chinese and he was scared to death and he, he physically assaulted her. Yep. Yeah. Um, so what was I going to say here? So um, I wanted to share with you guys how I sort of you know, fell into this thesis here. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was trying to look for the answer that would kind of make sense of all these different statements. You know, mm-hmm. Ganschwein's lecture at the Greg, uh, uh, what ben- Benedict repeatedly saying, I still have the responsibility. I still have the spiritual mandate. Mandate. At the same yeah. time, yep. at the same time, he uh, he recognizes uh, Francesco as his successor, and he says nice things about him or pleasant things. Right? Uh, I was like, how do you, you know, how do we square the circle here? And then I came acro- across the money quote uh, of all money quotes for me so far, and it's from an obscure book, uh, obscure for me because it was from 1888, uh, and it's by a priest, the Reverend Thomas Livius. And you can, you can find this book online. I think it's archive.org. You know, a lot of these old books are, uh, have been scanned, and you can read them for free. And this was, this was the quote I found here. It says, to say then that the popes are St. Peter's true successors and have the primacy by divine right truth that has been defined by the church and belongs to her faith but christ did not determine what were to be the conditions in concreto of such true succession but left all this to the determination of saint peter and his successors i might emphasize successors Uh, and then a little later on it says even granting that the union of the primacy with the roman see is your a divino the particular question may still be raised 
whether a pope in some evidently most grave and urgent necessity could validly separate the primacy from the see of Rome. And I was like, bingo. Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. I, I got the last little red dot on my card here. Um, and he says, the solution here is not an easy one. And grave theologians may be cited on either side. Uh, and I want to just point out that um, this book in which this quote appears, it does have a nihil obstat and it does have an imprimatur wow. from, okay. from, from a cardinal archbishop, no less, uh, Henry Edwards, uh, who actually was the archdeacon of St. Peter's Basilica at one point in the 19th century. And, and uh, uh, so the, the cardinal archbishop, Henry Edwards, says that this work is free from doctrinal error. So to, to say that you can separate, uh, hypothetically speaking, right, that, that a successor of St. Peter would have the power of Peter to separate the uh, primacy or the, uh, uh, from the See of Rome or Romanitas, right, to separate that uh, is possible. And it's not heresy to say that. Yeah. And it's uh, go ahead, Mark. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and if you if you read that within the framework of Miller's work on his dissertation and you understand all of this talk around uh, separating what's non-essential from the papal office versus what is essential to the papal office. And you remember that when Christ instituted the papacy, Peter was not at Rome. Yeah. In fact, yeah. We, Brilliant we point. still, we still celebrate in the, in the 1962 calendar, um, the chair at Antioch, Antioch, yeah, because that's where it originated. So, okay, let's think through this. Is Rome essential to the papal office, or for grave reason, could the Roman, could the the, the supreme legislature separate the Roman see from the primacy itself? And in Miller's book, he actually goes and he looks at the documents of the fathers at Vatican One. Right, we're going to talk about the spirit of Vatican One today. Uh, you know, Vatican, <laughs> Vatican I uh, solemnly defined, you know, our main dogmas about the papacy, right? The infallibility, uh, the supremacy or the primacy, the keys, the succession, uh, and the fact that, yeah, the, the Pope is the successor of St. Peter and has the keys. Um, but there was a debate at the, at the council about among the uh, different uh, council fathers. And there was this one council father who was seriously against this idea, his name was Philip Cosa, and he argued that no human authority, including that of the Pope, could separate Petrine succession from that in the Roman Episcopate. But even though there were people like that, there were people on the other side of the aisle who said, no, we don't have a and we're not gonna define that. And, and so, as yeah. Well, I want to I want to make sure that we bring up what happened to Peter on the Appian Way, because that that's to me, that's the crux of all of this. Peter chose Rome and you say, well, no, 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 that, no. Yes, he did. Peter was hightailing it out of Rome. He was on the Appian Way heading southeast out of Rome. And who does he meet? He meets Christ. He meets our Lord 
coming up the other way, walking in to Rome, carrying a cross. And of course, you know, when, when you encounter our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, walking down the road, carrying, carrying his cross, you, you stop and talk to him. And Peter went to him and said, Domine quo vadis, where are you going? And our Lord said back to Peter, I am going to Rome to be crucified again. That is all our Lord said. Peter then made the free choice himself to turn around and go back to Rome, knowing full well exactly how it was going to end for him. He would be arrested, he would be imprisoned, and he would be executed. Exactly. So, so Peter chose that he freely chose that and that is that is why and you know the protestants say oh rome blah 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 it's because peter died there by his own choice and paul also was executed there at almost exactly the same time and when i went to rome as a tourist the first time I got in a cab and that was one of the things that was, you know, near the top of my list is I want to go to that little church that's out on the Appian Way and they even have inside the church um, a lot of times when miraculous things would happen um, and Anne Catherine Emmerich goes into this a lot, what would happen is if people were standing or kneeling or anything on stone, that impressions would be made in the stone miraculously. Our Lord's footprints were made miraculously on the Appian Way. And so you can go into the church and what they have on the floor that you can actually stand in is, of course, a cast replica, but the original is there. And so that's one of the things that I did is I went to that little church of Domine Quo Vadis and stood in our Lord's footprints, the cast of them. And this, this, what happened, this is, this is to me so important. Peter chose it freely. And, and so brought this up at, the, at the council, um, uh, in Miller's book, it says, uh, Bishop Mariotti brought this up. Mm-hmm. He said that, um, Peter as his Episcopal see, since this choice did not involve the revealed will of Christ, Peter's successor was not by divine right, the Roman bishop, um, although you could say indirectly or providentially, obviously God is behind it. Right. But the, but the point here is that what Peter can do, perhaps his successor can undo. Okay. Um, and so I went back and I looked at, for example, uh, the great St. Robert Bellarmine, uh, who the Vatican I fathers uh, really looked to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, Robert Bellarmine was answering the Protestants, particularly the Calvinists. And this is what Robert Bellarmine has to say. He said, still, since Peter set up his seat at Rome, mm-hmm. it came to pass that this privilege was also local and hence mixed, for it is bound to the city of Rome as long as the successors of Peter retain the seat at Rome. Oh, Bob, our father and God, our father and God. We love Bob Bellarmine. (laughs) Or if the seat were to be transferred by divine law, then the Roman bishops would no longer be the bishops of the whole church. If the seat itself were to be transferred, I say so that those who are now Roman pontiffs would be called bishops of some other place. Um, now, uh, now, Robert Bellarmine does add 
that what I have said here, I have said hypothetically. Oh, yeah. Uh, he, we do not believe it is ever going to happen that the seed of Peter will be transferred to another place. And the reason is, is because God did not give him a vision of the future where Pachamama was being uh, worshipped. Exactly. On the exactly. <laughs> oh, I mean, if, I, I've, I've often thought and, you know, I don't know, fantasize is the right word, but if we could jump in a time machine, go back and get, get, St. Robert Bellarmine, get, get St. Charles Borromeo, get St. Philip Neri, get St. Catherine of Siena, bring them back with us in the time machine and show them this. They, I, I, I can only imagine what their response would be. And it would, it would have to be, what in the blue H-E double hockey sticks are you people doing just standing around here watching this happen? What is the matter with you? Why has an army not been raised? You know, I'm, I'm not kidding either. They would look at all of us and say, what are you doing? St. Peter himself used to wield a sword. Yes. So I would cover my ears if I was Bergoglio. Mm. Ooh, hoo, hoo, hoo. Well, and the other thing we need to show all the, all the saints that we bring back in our time machine is show them the Novus Ordo Mass. Can you imagine can you imagine the reaction that those people would have if you drug them into the average suburban Novus Ordo disaster and said, this is the ordinary form of the Roman rite today? And they, they would go through the roof. And of course, so as you guys know, uh, the Novus Ordo went black exactly on the 50th anniversary of its mandatory institution, right? There was not a single mass being offered in the United States of America publicly on the exact anniversary date that it became mandatory in the United States. No, it, was, it became mandatory on the first Sunday of Advent of 1969, if I'm not somebody, mistaken. Oh, somebody told me that they, they gave him a grace period so that oh. it would be like March 1970. Oh, I didn't exactly know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> if you can get a citation on that, Please send, send us that. Yeah, that that would be. Oh, that would be just too. I don't want to say good, but that would be too good. <laughs> you know? oh, I, I don't think the uh, the English version of the 1970 Missal Romanum I think was delayed. I mm. think was the issue. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Well, find that citation for us. Yeah. So. It be it became it became the official. Uh, mass of the universal church and you're correct first sunday of advent uh of 69 well, yeah. yeah technically the church year was 1970 but it was first uh, sunday in december of 1969 mm -hmm. so so back me, on track guys, um, yeah so for me guys um if if i use that as my working hypothesis that 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 benedict uh by by not renouncing the moonus in his declaratio but by only renouncing the ministry of the Bishop of Rome, uh, suddenly that makes his declaratio make sense. Suddenly it makes Ganschwein's speech make perfect sense. And it makes sense of all of his statements. And everybody, it, 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 even like you said, it makes sense of what, what uh, Francesco is, is, is acting and doing. Jorge. So, his his so, name is Jorge. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you can read out, and this really clicked for me uh, yesterday during the interview, uh, the the declaratio. If you don't have it pulled up, sure. maybe you can, you can get to that, professor, and just you know give it give us the you know maybe it's correct, maybe it's not correct, but uh, just the the critical piece 
of the Declaratio, the actual act itself, and what did he renounce? Okay, so this is what it says in, in the English translation. Uh, I have convoked you to this consistory, not only for the three canonizations, but also to communicate to you a decision of great importance for the life of the church. After having repeatedly examined my conscience before God, I have come to the certainty that my strengths, due to an advanced age, are no longer suited to an exercise of the Petrine ministry. I am well aware that this ministry, due to its essentially spiritual nature, must mm -hmm. be carried out not, not only with words and deeds, but no less with prayer and suffering. And I might interject here uh, that I think when he talks about the difference between functional and ontological responsibility, that's what he's talking about here. You bet. Uh, uh, now, back to the Declaratio. However, in today's world, subject to so many rapid changes and shaken by questions of deep relevance for the life of faith, in order to govern the bark of St. Peter and proclaim the gospel, both strength of mind and, and body are necessary. Strength, which in the last few months has deteriorated in me to the extent that I have had to recognize my incapacity to adequately fulfill the ministry entrusted to me. And last paragraph. For this reason, and well aware of the seriousness of this act, with full freedom, I declare that I renounce the ministry of Bishop of Rome, mm. successor of St. Peter, entrusted to me by the Cardinals, on the 19th of April, in the year of our Lord, 2005, in such a way that as from the 28th of February, in the year of our Lord, 2013, at 2000 hours, the See of Rome, the See of St. Peter, will be vacant, and a conclave to elect the new Supreme Pontiff will have to be convoked by those whose competence it is. <laughs> so he renounces the ministry of the Bishop of Rome. Explicitly. Explicitly. Um, there's a little bit of a problematic part at the end there where right. he talks about the new Supreme Pontiff, but that falls outside of the critical, yeah. uh, the, the critical, the renouncement right. itself. Exactly. And then what I'd like to draw you guys' attention to is when he says here, I renounce the ministry of Bishop of Rome, successor of St. Peter, entrusted to me by the cardinals. Now, it's not the cardinals That's right. who make him No, hope. it's not. It's God Almighty, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who, when he accepts their election, makes him hope. Now, I went back and I looked at Miller, not uh, Miller from the, the book, the, the dissertation, but Miller in an article that he wrote for Crisis Magazine in 1996. Mm -hmm. and, and this started me thinking. Um, I'll read some important highlights to you guys if you'd like. He compares what John Paul II did in Universal, uh, how do we say it here? University Dominici Grigis, which he published on the 22nd of February, 1996, regarding, you know, papal elections, right? That's the apostolic constitution that governs the conclave. Mm -hmm. And what he says here, uh, that is to say, Archbishop Miller, UDG, emphasizes that the cardinals are the appropriate group 
to elect the Bishop of Rome. Mm -hmm. The local church of Rome selects its bishop, who is ipso facto head of the Episcopal College and the visible head of the church. Um, later on, a little further down, he says, except for the patriarchs of the Eastern Catholic churches, the other cardinals are all specifically bound to the church at Rome. Some are bishops of the diocese surrounding the city. The rest are incorporated into the local clergy by being given a titular church. Uh, this Roman connection preserves the tradition of the early church that local clergy with the help of nearby bishops choose their pastor. So basically, Archbishop Miller here is saying that Pope John Paul II is trying to emphasize the Romanitas of, of the Pope insofar as he is the Bishop of Rome and that really these cardinals, they're Romans is what they are. They're yes. electing their bishop. That's how we should view this. That's another thing that a lot of people are confused about is because the cardinals are recruited from all over the planet, they think that, that the College of Cardinals is some global thing. It's not. It's Roman. That's why every cardinal is given a church in Rome. And some of them, some of the churches that are cardinalatial are little teeny tiny churches. And, you know, then you'll walk in and there'll be a plaque on the wall that says, you know, this is the titular church of, and, you know, it's some guy from from Southeast Asia or something, you know. But no, the, the College of Cardinals is a Roman thing. It is 100% Roman. Yeah. And so the thing of it is, um, uh, John Paul wanted to emphasize this so much that he added something to the, uh, uh, the, uh, the oath that the uh, cardinal electors swear to, just to remind them that, yeah, besides picking the Bishop of Rome, you are in fact picking you know, the, the man with the keys. <laughs> you are picking St. Peter here. So he, he's, he adds this line, right? We likewise promise, pledge, and swear that whichever of us by divine disposition is elected Roman pontiff will commit himself faithfully to carrying out the munus petronum of pastor of the universal church. So it's, it's like, yeah, guys, you are, you know, you're, you're electing your local bishop, but remember, you're also going to be you know, electing the guy who has the munus. Okay. Um, but notice, notice the word here, munus. In their oath, they're swearing about the munus. Um, and, and, and that's what's lacking in uh, Benedict's uh, Declaratio, he never renounces the munis. He only renounces the ministry of Bishop of Rome. And this is, this is really important because Dr. Marshall and there are other people keep trying to make the argument that munus and ministerium are metonymic, that, they are, that they're just completely interchangeable synonyms. I have it said to me from the highest, highest levels of the church to my face that these words are not not, not metonymic, most especially in canon law. So that, just put, put that out of your mind. These are two very different things. History shows it, the academy shows it, everything shows it. You can't just break out a Lewis and Short Latin dictionary and look at a word and look at, you know, all of the synonyms that yeah. are listed under that word in Lewis and Short and say, okay, boom, this is a metonym. No, sir. No, sir. Yeah. yeah. Canon 17, ecclesiastical laws must be understood in accord with the proper meaning of the words considered in their text and context. 
If the meaning remains doubtful and obscure, recourse must be made to parallel places if there are such. And, if, and there are parallel places in canon law, and it shows that munis means office, yeah. not uh, ministry. Not ministry, exactly. Ministry, ministerio is never used as a, uh, as a substitute for uh, office. That's right. Not to mention this goes back to the entire mid-20th century German hot button of, from a Petrine standpoint, from the papacy, separating the munis from the ministerium and you know the whole discussion around how that could be done and how can it be more uh, uh friendly towards synodal. other yeah yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. Syn- could it be synodal could it be a committee could it be collegial so on and so collegial, collegial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so uh yeah t- the 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 whole ecumenical movement I mean, that's that's the thing, and I made the point in my number two video, and I've made it to many other people that I've given the text to. This this dissertation by Miller is 300 pages of agony about the munus ministerium distinction. 300 solid pages of just agonizing over this. So no wonder so many people didn't want to read it. Mm. Um, yeah, it was, it was, boy, it's a lot. Um, uh, the other distinction I want to make, or not distinction, just something to point out uh, about the Declaratio in Latin is that, uh, and you sort of read it from the beginning, but uh, he's talking about the munis over and over and over again in the lead up to the actual renunciation clause. Yeah, yeah. And then when it comes right down to it, Boom. he switches and uses ministerio. Actually, ministerio is what, is, is what he used it in the Latin. The other thing I want to point out is all through when he's explaining why he's doing this, he talks about the 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 inadequate uh, his inadequate ability to govern, mm-hmm. not anything else, just the governance part. Yep. Which ironically is exactly what he seems to have given up or thinks he he gave up. But he continues to do things like confirm the brethren by writing, by writing that book with Cardinal Sarah, uh, by putting the kibosh on the celibacy, priestly celibacy thing through that book. So he, he's the one who c- continues to do all the things, including one of the primary qualities, charisms, jobs of, of the Vicar of Christ on Earth is to confirm the brethren who is doing that? Who is the person on the surface of this planet right now who is doing anything even remotely close to that? It's Joseph Ratzinger who's doing it, and Bergoglio is is tearing everything to the ground and attempting to burn it all to ash. And so, again, that's another one of these visible manifestations. I thought when he first announced this in February of 13, my first instinct was, oh boy, I bet he's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, something like that. And he's t- he watched JP2 die slowly of Parkinson's, of a, of a neurodegenerative situation. And he's done this because he's just been diagnosed, because he's been diagnosed with something. It is now, seven years on, obvious 
that there was no such thing as that. He's he's just a 93-year-old man. I actually know someone who amazingly, like miraculously, actually went to Rome and went and had an audience with Pope Benedict and saw him. This would be around, you know, Valentine's Day or something like that. Talk to him. He, he code switches between three languages, English, German, Italian, absolutely no problem. He's completely lucid, absolutely lovely. He's just, a, he's, a, he's a 93-year-old man, and you know, a 93-year-old man isn't going to jump out of his chair and go run a marathon or anything, but he, he's completely lucid. There is no, there's no extraordinary health concern you know, he, he does use a walker. Again, he's 93. And, and he's been, he's had either partial or total blindness in one eye for many, many years. That's nothing new. Um, everybody knew that. Um, but otherwise, he's just a 93-year-old man. So it, the, the gut fear that he did this because he had been diagnosed with something terrible, that turned out to be wrong. So we are at an hour 30, and we easily have a part two of this episode uh, because there's a lot more to cover and a lot of canon law that we still need to cover. But I, yeah. I thought it might it, – it's probably important, Dr. Matza, if you could ju- – if you can sum up where you are today, your, your exact position today in terms of uh, what it, – it's pretty clear what you think uh, – uh, maybe what we all think Benedict attempted in his uh, declaratio. What do you, what do you believe is, is reality today? What, what do you believe the situation is in Rome in terms of the, the different components that we've discussed? Well, you know, we, we have to go where the evidence leads us, right? I read you that quote earlier from canon law, which says that the, uh, let me read that again for good measure here. Is that 748, 748? 748. Yeah. All persons are bound to seek the truth in those things which regard God and his church. So that's what we're trying to do here as best we can, aided by the Holy Spirit, uh, asking God, asking Our Lady's intercession, right? Mm, Amen. Uh, And by virtue of divine law are bound by the obligation and possess the right of embracing and observing the truth which they have come to know. All right, so I am in the process, we are in the process of trying to come to know the truth here as best we can. And believe me, I, I'm quite the scrupulous person and I would not want to lead anybody into schism. Uh, so I, I'm just doing the best I can. Years, okay? And we wouldn't even be having this conversation if Pope Benedict had just, you know, re- left the office the way the previous popes who resigned just left the office behind. Mm-hmm. But he's the one that wears white. He's, he's the one that gives apostolic blessings. He's the one that's still in the Vatican. He still calls himself Pope, His Holiness, right? So uh, he's the one that maybe sent Ganschwein out there, or, or we don't know, maybe Ganschwein did it of his own initiative. But I tend to think that Benedict is leaving us breadcrumbs. Yeah. He, he can't, he's not, Amen. I don't think he's, he's not fully at liberty. And no. I think when Ganschwein in his talk said, uh, yeah, you know, uh, Peter, he, what Benedict just did, it's so different from Peter Celestine, St. Peter Celestine V, right? Mm-hmm. Who would have liked to go home and retire, but instead his, pred- his successor kept him as a prisoner of the Vatican. Like, why bring that up? Yeah. Uh, unless you're trying to make a point. Uh, so that Well, and going sad. back to the, the first point that you made, that it's, uh, it's so like a ho-hum, regular, everyday resignation that it's also like the Immaculate Conception. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It is so absurd. Uh, 
So what I would like to think is what I brought up with Dr. Marshall. I would like to think that Benedict is, is like, you know, Superman at the end of Superman 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler alert. Um, when uh, he, uh, you know, when the three supervillains think they have him and they, they put him into his crystal chamber to try to, uh, you know, strip him of his superpowers. But he's pulled a fast one on them. And so when the procedure is over, they're the ones that have lost their superpowers. Uh, and of course, it's, it's just great, right? Yeah, Neil that, that is the, that, Neil before Zod, that is the best Superman, by oh, the I way, agree. by I the agree. way, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and the, best, the best Star Trek is Star Trek. Two, which opens course, with the Kobayashi Maru, yeah. Precisely, so I, I would love to think that that's what Benedict did. Ultimately, what I have to say here is that if you're looking for a thesis that would explain everything or 90% of everything, I think this is it. It it makes sense of everything. Mm -hmm. Yet Weigel is correct. Um, Roberto Di Mattei is correct. Robert Moynihan is correct. Uh, Walter Brandmuller is correct. Mm -hmm. There is no papal mark, indelible mark on your soul. Mm -hmm. So, but on the other hand, that's all Benedict keeps saying. I have the personal responsibility. Yeah. A father never stops being a father. Always and so, forever. Always and forever. Yep. It's irrevocable, right? Mm-hmm. So um, he never leaves the Vatican. He's there in white. He's giving apostolic blessings. He's acting like a pope, unlike uh, Bergoglio Francesco, right? So, Jorge. Um, Jorge. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> another, another, another quote from the, uh, from the Archbishop Gonswine speech was that uh, he was talking about he certainly hasn't uh, given up his mandate, something which would have been quite impossible for him. Yeah. Yep. I don't even have that in front of me. It's just something that is seared into my brain. Yeah, no, no, exactly. And, and, and so you have to ask yourself, well, then what, what was Benedict thinking? Did he really buy in completely to all that 1960s, 1970s Nouvelle Theologie stuff? But in his 1977 speech... He says that um, personal responsibility, or let's put this way, collegiality and primacy are, are interdependent, but they do not merge in such a way that the personal responsibility ultimately disappears into anonymous governing bodies. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, you can't have a, a committee, you can't have three popes or two popes. Only one person can actually have that ontological responsibility that's connected to the cross, and that's him. Mm-hmm. So if he's not buying into the worst of the, of the Nouvelle Theologie, then how do we make sense of this? And then, I, like I said, I came across that quote by the Reverend Thomas Livius, Lord rest his soul, a contemporary of Cardinal Newman, and it's right there in black and white, that it, it, theologians have debated, is it possible that the Pope could separate the primacy and the keys from the bishop and the episcopacy of rome and i thought to myself isn't that what he keeps saying over and over again i no longer have episcopal authority i'm like a retired bishop i'm emeritus right mm-hmm. so he's no longer the bishop of, see, now that's the whole thing pope benedict without a motu proprio without changing canon law just suddenly sprung this Pope Emeritus on us. Right. right. That That's telling. And, that's a great point that he didn't, he, he could have written a motu proprio that was like three sentences long. Boom, done. Right. He could have done that. 
And he didn't. Yep. No. So if he can use his supreme power as pontiff, as supreme legislator, to just do that without changing canon law, right, to dispensing himself from the need to do that, uh, then perhaps what he did was he, he uh, you, again, using that power, he, and I honestly think this is what happened. I, I can't completely prove it, but I can tell you this, it makes everything else make sense. Yep. If what he did was if he separated the, uh, the power of the keys, the primacy of Peter from the Bishop of Rome, that would answer everything if that's the case. Yep. And as I, just a footnote, as I said in my interview with Dr. Marshall yesterday, I think the demons and Satan, they had a wisp of this whole thing. And I mentioned that death metal band from Sweden called Ghost. It precisely yep. during precisely during the pontificate of Benedict, between 2005 and 2012, that's when these maniacs came out and had this act where the lead singer was called Papa Emeritus. Yeah, yeah. And, and dresses up in this satanic upside down cross miter uh and no you, you honestly me. can't make it up, can't um, make I, wrote, up no. I, I wrote a whole blog post about this they sing in latin and it is straight satanic and the leader of that uh of that band is the one who invented the term pop exactly so again, what I told Dr. Marshall, my understanding from listening to The Exorcist is that although the demons don't actually know the future, they're like super chess masters, right? Yeah. They can figure out all these different moves hundreds ahead. And this is Satan mocking the vicar of Christ. You well, see? I mean, we mm. need to, this is, I, I shouldn't even open this can, but we have don't, to just, the don't. Saint Gallen Mafia, the Saint Gallen Mafia, we have to bring it up because the mm. Saint Gallen Mafia had been gunning for this for yes. decades. And so you mentioned the demons, the demons hear all vocal conversations. They can't read our thoughts, but they hear all vocal conversations. Cardinal, Cardinal Martini who was who was the cardinal archbishop of milan he dies on 30 august 2012 and he is the head of the saint gallen mafia who then the day after he dies and by the way he he had told ratzinger you know we're gonna give you we're gonna give you eight years or so and then if if you haven't done what we want you to do you're gonna go away yeah i mean and they they, they openly fess up to this he dies on the 30th of August. Um, then Walter Casper becomes the de facto head of the St. Gallen Mafia. And then it's later revealed that Pope Benedict actually started talking to um, Ganswine and other people, like one or two other people, about, about this plan that he was hatching, like immediately after uh, Martini dies. And, and Walter Casper becomes the head of the St. Gallen Mafia, and this speaks to the coercion, which we'll, we'll save all that for the, the next episode, same bat time, same bat channel, and all that, you know? Um, <laughs> I mean, so, guys, listen. A lot, a lot of people hurl the pejorative conspiracy theorist at anyone who dares talk about this, and um, my, my retort to that now is, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, maybe you're just a reality denier. Uh, let, let's let's turn it back. Let's let's turn it back. There are actual conspiracies in the world. Good grief, we're living through the biggest uh, the biggest 
act of uh, crime against humanity ever executed in human history right now as this is being recorded, you can't, you can't sit there and say that there are no conspiracies ever. This, this is one of them, and I'm absolutely convinced that it, it's all actually tied together, uh, the Corona cold conspiracy and what has happened with the papacy and everything. It's, it's all of a piece, because at the end of the day, you've got Freemasonic New World Order behind that, and of course, who's behind that is, is Satan himself, so it's all connected. But don't, don't let people browbeat you with this, oh, you're just a Looney Tunes conspiracy theorist. No, you know, may, maybe you're just a reality denier, because this stuff can't be denied anymore. It it's really speaks to the strength, uh, the power of normalcy bias yeah. in, its, in its classic sense. It, it really is because there, how many millions or billions of souls are there right now that don't really think anything strange is going on in the world? Yeah, that, that's exactly It's just exactly a normal day. Right. Yeah, just, yeah. I can't really, you know, I don't have anything on my mind other than what my next TikTok video is going to look like. That's right. That's right. I can't, I can't leave my house and I have to wear I have to wear a muzzle veil if I even dare leave my house. Um, but you know every, everything's fine, everything's normal. Oh, the the, the mm-hmm. economy has been completely destroyed, and forty um, percent of small businesses have been destroyed. Uh, but you know this is completely completely normal. Everything's fine. Shut up, stupid. The eternal sacrifice has been taken away. The eternal sacrifice has been taken away. It's a crime. It's a crime to assist at a public mass in most places now. Yeah, everything's fine. Totally normal. Yep. Okay, we're at uh, an hour and 43. We've got more to cover in the next episode. Uh, We'll go for the wrap-up. Yes. For feedback, the email address for the show, if you have any comments or suggestions, is podcast at barnhart.biz. Masses for Anne's benefactors, at least one mass every day, plus one requiem mass every week for everyone who died in the previous week. Please pray for these priests and all priests. Now more than ever, the satanic forces are attacking. But your prayers to God for this intention can help to hold that tide back. Yes. I was going to say, can I put in a shameless plug? Sure. (laughs) So I am the host of the Bar of History on Virgin Most Powerful Radio which is a weekly podcast that I do. I do it live on Mondays from noon to one o'clock Pacific time, but you can always go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org and and download the the past shows. Uh, This Monday, I don't know when this podcast is gonna air, but this Monday I'm gonna have with me um, uh, uh, Mr. Mosier, Steve Mosier from um, the Population Research Institute to talk about the Wuhan virus and all kind of things. Wow. Okay. Yeah. We'll be tuning in for that. Well, and there will be a big plug for that in the show notes. Absolutely. And what, what is the, uh, is that a live? Yes. It's a live, live show, show from noon to one o'clock uh, Pacific time. Uh, but folks can always uh, listen to the uh, podcast if they can't catch the live show. Very well. Uh, the Barnhart podcast is a production of super nerd media. If you got some value out of this or previous podcasts and would like to return some value, please visit supernerdmedia.com slash donate for more information. Even though he's not on this recording, if Supernerd weren't editing, processing, perfecting, and publishing the recorded audio, now with three channels, uh, you wouldn't now be hearing it. He also keeps Ansight going against all cyber threats, foreign and, and domestic. domestic. <laughs>
And Anne, would you like to do the Matthew 1720 initiative? Absolutely. The Matthew 1720 initiative is fasting two days a week, obviously prayer, rosary every day. This is the fourfold intention that Bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed as anti-Pope and the whole anti-papacy be nullified. Number two, that Pope Benedict Ratzinger be publicly recognized as having been the one and only living Pope since April of 2005. Number three, that Bergoglio repent, revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace, and someday achieve the beatific vision. And that Pope Benedict repent of whatever he might need to repent of, as anybody, you know, all of us, we all have things to repent of, die in a state of grace, and someday achieve the beatific vision. Absolutely nothing less will do. Our Lady, undoer of knots, and this is the biggest one ever, maybe, pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for us. Amen. Well, I thought, uh, Professor, you have any last words? I'm, we're going to end with the collect of the Mass of the Day. Yes. Uh, well, you know, we have to ask Our Lady of Fatima's intercession. Uh, our Lord has entrusted the peace of the world to her immaculate heart. Uh, so we, we need to be praying to, uh, uh, to Jesus through Mary uh, for the triumph of her immaculate heart. Amen. And, and at, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a big way in the next uh, podcast because it seems uh, almost uh, for certain that, that Fatima is playing a central role in the current events. Okay, uh, the collect in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. This is from the Feast of St. Augustine of Canterbury, today's, uh, today's Mass. O God, who didst vouchsafe to illumine the English people with the light of the true faith by the preaching and miracles of blessed Augustine, thy confessor and bishop, grant that by his intercession, the hearts of those who err may return to the unity of the truth and that we may be of one mind in thy will. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, thy son, who lives and reigns with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Uh, that's a wrap. Until next time, I'm Mark. Stay frosty, my friends. And I'm Ann. Thanks, guys. God bless. <laughs>